the Indigenous Connection Show. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Tanse, Randy Lynn, Natsigasin, Mastasinini, Hia, Uchini, and Lakla Bish, Alberta, Egwa, Ni, Wigan. Hello everyone, my name is Randy Lynn. Um, I originate from the Big Stone Cree Nation in Northern Alberta Treaty 8 Territory. However, I live in Naklabish, Alberta now. And you are listening to the Indigenous Connections radio show. Um, it's very empowering for me to introduce myself in Cree to you guys every week because I think of the history of my mother and how Cree the language I spoke at the beginning is her first language, yet because of her experiences of attending residential school and then being forced to move to the city afterwards, uh, she lost her language. So growing up, she never really spoke Cree to me. She understood it, but she couldn't speak it because she hadn't spoken it in for such a long time. So for me to introduce myself in Cree is, a, is very important to me as well as it's very empowering and it's honoring how much work my mother has done, how much work our First Nations people have done, our elders, our older people have done to make sure that the culture is alive, that it's maintained. So I'm very honored and greatly appreciative of this opportunity every week to share with you guys about Indigenous people. Um, So For this radio show, we talk about indigenous cultures from many point of views. Um, We explore topics such as art, history, ideologies, and spirituality, both from a historical and contemporary point of view, as there has been a misunderstanding, a stereotype even, that indigenous people, First Nations people, were relics of the past, that we're stuck in the past. And yes, a lot of our teachings, our values are based on the past, the way our people operated and coexisted with one another. But we are also a people that are constantly evolving and changing with the times and utilizing the resources that are available to us as those resources change. So it's my hopes that by having these conversations with you guys every week, we can start creating a dialogue and provide explanations on why things are the way they are. And hopefully by doing that, we can start to fill in the blanks of these misunderstandings, these stereotypes, these misconceptions, and actually really start to build a bridge, a metaphorical bridge, if you will, between the indigenous and non-indigenous communities. And I feel this is how we start to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, of healing not only First Nations people, but healing all of us so that we can work together, so that we can provide a better future for our children and our grandchildren. Because isn't that really the ultimate goal of life? Leaving this world better than we found it, providing better opportunities and safer places for our children to grow and thrive in. Um, So today's topic is a continuation of the Okamawa Squeo series. Uh, I don't even know what's episode I'm on. I believe I'm on episode nine. (laughs) That's how long we've been doing this for. (laughs) Um, But bear with me. I do believe we're on ninth episode. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention. 
But okay, so we are going to be continuing on the Okamawa Square series, loosely translated into English, the Boss Lady series, uh, where we explore the original teachings of how women were honored and respected, and we kind of ventured off into how colonization and the introdu- introduction sorry, of the patriarch system has really dismantled our matriarch ways, how indigenous women have been oppressed for a very long time, how there is an epidemic of our women going missing and turning up murdered, and we explored all that hard stuff, and now we're kind of bringing ourselves back up to what is being done about this. What are we doing to ch- make change in our society? What are we doing to better ourselves so that these incidents don't keep occurring? So stay tuned for that. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I believe we're on the ninth episode of our Okamawa Square series. And last week we were talking about the Red Dress campaign and I want to continue on speaking on other campaigns that are doing really important work in helping to bring awareness as well as advocate for our missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, uh, two-spirited trans people. But before we get into that, there has been some very important current event news that have come up in regards to uh, the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women's campaign. And one of them is, wait for it, improved self-service coming to BC's Highway of Tears. So we spent a couple, no, I can't even remember how many episodes. (laughs) Anywho, I believe we spent at least one episode talking about the Highway of Tears and how numerous amounts of women and even an entire family have gone missing on BC's Northern Highway 16. Um, So I'm going to read to you a CBC article from April 7, 2021, and it states, Improved cell phone service is coming to two highways crossing British Columbia, including the section of remote road known as the Highway of Tears. 70% of, sorry, 70% of Highway 16 already has some coverage, but the province said Wednesday the $11.7 million project will bring cell service to the remaining 252 kilometers between Smithers and Prince Rupert. Cell phone reception was a critical recommendation in the Highway of Tears Symposium report in 2006, which sought ways to make the isolated roads safer, especially for Indigenous women and girls after decades of disappearance and killing in the area. Gladys Reddick's niece, Tamara Chipman, disappeared on September 21, 2005. She was last seen hitchhiking along Highway 16 just outside Prince Rupert. Radix said she was thrilled to hear about the cell service, even though it's taken more than 15 years to arrive. It's better late than never, she told CBC on Wednesday. Even if the girls had cell phones, they wouldn't be able to reach out for help anyways. So I think the cell phone towers is a long time coming, and I'm just elated that it is happening. Barb Ward Burkett, sorry, executive director of the Prince George Native Friendship Center, said the change serves as an important step of reconciliation in honoring four murdered and missing sisters, daughters, mothers, aunties, and their families. We must continue to do everything in our power to prevent violence against Indigenous women and girls, 
to ensure they are safe to travel anywhere in our province, but especially between communities along Highway 16, she said in a statement. The project is set to begin in the spring and will add 12 cell towers as well as improve connectivity at three rest stops with the province and Ottawa each contributing over $2 million and Rogers Communications picking up the remainder of the bill. TELUS has connected the remaining 500 kilometers of Highway 16 since 2013. Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert became known as the Highway of Tears more than two decades ago. A reference to the many Indigenous women who have gone missing or been murdered along the route since 1970. So... My response to that article is exactly how the victims of the Highway of Tears family feel. This is a long time coming, but this is a positive change. Um, For a very long time, they've been asking for this, and it's finally becoming a reality. So it, it makes me hopeful that, yes, these horrible things have happened for a very long time, but... As we continue to push for change and we continue to advocate for families, we will eventually see that change and we will see surrounding communities and government groups and other private businesses taking notice of what's happening and being more willing to help prevent these kind of crimes from happening and from further victims appearing. Um, And the second thing I wanted to talk about is actually about our neighbors to the south in the United States. So some exciting news there. So with President Biden in power now, he actually appointed the very first First Nations, well, they refer to themselves as Native American in the United States, the very first Native American woman to office. So we have Miss Deb Hadlin from the Pueblo Nation in Arizona, actually got to visit the Pueblos. This is so cool. Anyways, that's off topic. So Miss Deb Hadlin has been appointed to be the Secretary of the Interior uh, for the United States. So talk about breaking some glass ceilings right there. And with her first line of work, she actually set up a unit just for missing and murdered Indigenous woman cases. So I'm going to share with you a CNN article. It says, Deb Hadlin creates unit to investigate investigate killings and disappearances of Indigenous people. Interior Secretary Deb Hadlin has announced a new unit within Bureau of Indian Affairs that plans to tackle the decades-long crisis of missing and murdered Native Americans. I think that should actually be centuries, but... That's my opinion. Violence against indigenous peoples is a crisis that has been underfunded for decades, cough, cough, centuries, Hadlin said in a statement Thursday. Far too often, murders and missing persons cases in Indian country go unsolved and undressed, leaving families and communities devastated. Thousands of indigenous women and girls have been killed or vanished for years. Their families and activists say that cases are often disregarded by law enforcement, which has been forced to bring them the spotlight on the issues through social media campaign marches and protests. The new unit is expected to help put the full weight of the federal government to investigate the cases and coordinate resources among federal agencies in Indian country, according to the Department of Interior. About 1,500 American Indian and Alaska Native 
Missing persons have been recorded across the United States by the National Crime Information Center, and 2,700 homicide cases have been reported to the Federal Government Uniform Crime Reporting Program. The Justice Department has reported that on some reservations, Native American women are murdered at a rate more than 10 times the national average. 10 times the national average. But the existing data and statistics about the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people across the U.S. is not comprehensive, advocates say. Anita Lucci, a descendant descendant of the Cheyenne tribe and executive director of Sovereign Bodies Institute, has been tabulating missing and murdered cases for the past few years. The Indigenous-led research organization has documented 2,306 missing Native American women and girls in the U.S. since the 1990s, and about 58% of these cases were homicide, the group said in a report last year. Lucy said, hopes the new initiative led by the Interior Department is beneficial to the families, pushes cases towards justice, and really holds law enforcement agencies accountable for their complicity to the issue. Whether it's a missing family member or a homicide investigation, these efforts will be all hands on deck, Hadlin said. We are fully committed to assisting tribal communities with these investigations, and the MMU will leverage every resource available to be a force multiplier in preventing these cases from becoming cold case investigations. So that's pretty awesome. Like, so this epidemic of missing murdered indigenous women, I know I've been focusing on cases that have happened in Canada, but we can't be blind to the fact that these things are happening in the United States as well. There's so many different horrific cases that I've heard of women going missing. Um, There was one very disturbing case that I heard where a young girl who was pregnant, she was indigenous, uh, she wanted to buy some baby things off the buy and sell page and she didn't return home. And I apologize, this is very triggering to some people maybe, so just a heads up. What happened to her was the people that she went to go meet to buy some buy and sell pages actually murdered her and, um, how do I say this? They took her baby. They they operated on her and took her baby and tried to steal her baby. Uh, thankfully, her baby was relocated and was given to her father, but the mother did not make it as she was murdered. So these are... This happened maybe two years ago in the United States. It's very, very disturbing. So this is all I can say. It's a breath of fresh air. This is a long time coming. This was a long time needed. And I'm so grateful that there are people who are willing to do this work and put the resources behind to back it to make sure that these things do not go unnoticed anymore. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our conversation on other campaigns that are making waves in helping to advocate for missing murdered indigenous women, girls, two-spirit and trans people. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today we are continuing on talking about various campaigns that help empower indigenous people, help advocate for the missing and murdered indigenous women girls to spirited trans people movement 
So we are going to pick up where we left off. So last week we talked about the Red Dress campaign. I talked about how we utilized Red Dress in powwows as well. And now we are going to talk about the Moosehide campaign. So this is another campaign that is contributing towards bringing change and awareness towards violence against missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit trans people. So what this campaign entails is that what they have is they have people wear a small square piece of moose hide pinned to their chest. Henceforth, the moose hide campaign. What makes this campaign a little different is that it focuses on working with the men and the boys as a means of prevention of abuse towards women, girls, and trans people. So the Moose High campaign's origin begins on early 2011, August morning, an indigenous man named Paul Laxerti and his daughter Raven were hunting moose near the infamous Highways of Tears, a section of highway between Prince George and Prince Rupert, BC, where dozens of women have gone missing or have been found murdered. They had brought down a moose that would help feed the family for the winter and provided a moose hide for cultural purposes. As the daughter was skinning the moose, her father started thinking there was so near the highway that had brought so much sorrow to the communities along its endless miles. Here with his young daughter who deserved a life free of violence, that's when the idea sprang to life. What if they used the moose hide to inspire men to become involved in the movement to end violence towards women and children? Together with family and friends, they cut up the moose hide into small squares and started a moose hide campaign. So today, the moose hide campaign stands up against violence towards women and children. Uh, It's a grassroots movement of indigenous and non-indigenous men and boys who are standing up against violence towards women and children. Wearing this moose hide signifies their commitment to honor, respect, and protect the women and children in their lives and work together in ending violence against women and children. So really just summing up everything I've been emphasizing all these episodes. (laughs) And you know, I can throw statistics and sad stories at you all day, but change isn't going to happen till we put in the work and support our men on their own healing journey so that we can prevent these crimes from happening. And I touched a little bit about this last episode when I talked about praying for the perpetrators of crime. And usually it's hurt people that hurt people. It's often a learned behavior. Uh, Perpetrators are often victims of crimes themselves that have been unhealed, that they learn, this is how I get my needs met, by taking, because this is what happened to me. And we can't forget the idea of toxic masculinity, which has left many men and our boys emotionally stunted and crippled in a way. They're told you're not allowed to feel this way. You're not allowed to hurt. You're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to do this, this, and this because you don't come off strong and manly if you do. So they oppress those feelings. And with those oppressed feelings, the only validation they feel is when they're anger, angry and aggressive. This kind of come became the only acceptable form for men to demonstrate their emotions. And that's a very unfortunate situation. Um, But it's campaigns like this that are going to help change that narrative. And it's going to be us as well as the way we raise our children and the way we treat the men in our lives. 
that we respect the fact that they are human, that they do have emotions, that they do feel, and they may not demonstrate them the way a woman does, but if they do, they are allowed to. They are allowed to hurt. They're allowed to be sad. They're allowed to cry. They're allowed to enjoy the moment, you know? So if you ever have some spare time in your busy lives, I definitely encourage you to check out their website. It is full of resources for men, women, and children, along with a 10-point challenge for all groups of people in how you can better yourself, how you can challenge the negative misunderstandings you have around women. And even though this campaign is directed towards men in helping them heal, the Musai campaign is very careful not to perpetrate uh, a patriarch system. And they include gender inequality views. They are honoring the original ways of our matriarch society. So taken from the website itself, it says, the Musai campaign represent, representatives participated in a retreat with indigenous female leaders and matriarchs and explored strategies to address this challenge. The guidance from the women leaders at the retreat was for the Musai campaign to establish a wise aunties council of women leaders from across the country. The role of the wise aunties council is to oversee and guide the work of the Moose High campaign to ensure its integrity. Several women also sit on the board of the nonprofit society, which guides the campaign. The campaign continues to reach out to women leaders for guidance, encouragement, and to offer whatever we can in a way to support the broad movement and and gender-based and domestic violence. So just to add a little bit of clarity there, aunties has kind of become slang for First Nations people of women that we look up to that aren't necessarily our mothers or our grandmothers, but those women in our lives that help guide us, that help protect us, that help provide safety and comfort for us, even though they don't play that initial role of being mother or grandmother or even sister. It's just that a well-respected female that men can look up to, boys can look up to for that comfort, safety, and love. Um, so that's why they use that word, aunties. It's not to be weird. <laughs> and I really appreciate their decolonization approach, uh, going back to the original ways of how men worked in society, how originally when they were making important decisions, they always asked, a council of women, is this okay? I need a second opinion. Is this okay to do? So they're honoring those teachings of our people's ways, our matriarch ways, as well encouraging men to fulfill their original roles as protectors. So in the first episode, I talked about how men, their role in society was to be protectors and providers, to protect the children, to protect the elderly, and to protect the women. That was their highest calling in life. So I really appreciate how the Musai campaign is really steering towards promoting that lifestyle because that's what we need. We need our men to step up and take care of our women. We need them to stop hurting us. We need them to stop victimizing us. Uh, that is not why we were placed on this earth. We weren't placed to be underneath and to be subservient. We were placed to help each other grow. And on top of including women in their efforts, I found a very interesting fact about the campaign, and that is it utilizes Indigenous women living in BC, uh, where the campaign originated from, and they use women specifically from uh, the neighborhoods that are underpoverished 
and women that are having very difficult times obtaining employment. And they are in charge of creating the Moosehide Pin. So they're not only empowering the men and showing them a better way, but they're also providing employment opportunities for women from very um, oppressive backgrounds or that may be unable to be hired in other circumstances. So we see efforts on both sides being made. Um, One last thing about the campaign before we take a break is that it stands on the inclusion of LGBTQ2 plus community. So on the website, it says, a question is, what about transgender people and the LGBTQ2 plus community? As an organization, the Moosehide campaign focuses on engaging men to end violence against women and children. In pursuing this, we respect the dignity and gender identity of all people and aim to create inclusive and safe spaces for participants at campaign events. We believe all LGBTQ2+, 2S+, are sacred, and we support any efforts to raise awareness and bring an end to gender-based and domestic violence across all sectors of society. And I think that's very beautiful. We need that inclusion because we need our two-spirited and our trans people to be respected as well, as they are also being victimized in these crimes. Um, and they are, there's many prejudice and misunderstandings and stereotypes against them as well, as well as our women, right? So I think this is a really great movement. Um, and I'm giving it two thumbs up. (laughs) I'm really proud of the work they're doing, and I'm really proud of their approach of utilizing Indigenous ideologies and teachings to empower not only Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous people to collectively work together. So we'll take a quick break. I have another campaign I'd like to explore after this. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. Uh, Today we are continuing our conversation on various campaigns that are helping to empower Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people uh, to that work collectively and also to advocate for missing murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit trans people. Um, So next on our list is the She is Indigenous campaign. Uh, This is another campaign working towards empowering our women and reclaiming the value of women in a dominantly patriarch society. So I first stumbled across this campaign on Facebook, uh, and it actually profiles Indigenous women who have influenced change in their communities, as well as their accomplishments in their profession. So I've actually seen many women from the Lakeland area Uh, actually being profiled in the campaign, which I think is pretty cool, you know. Our hometown heroes, our women in this area are making change, which is a very amazing and beautiful thing. So a little more about the She Is Indigenous campaign. Um, From their website, it says, Every day, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women are shaping our communities from coast to coast to coast. And yet negative stereotypes and preconceptions about what it means to be an Indigenous woman abound. She is Indigenous honors the strength and contributions of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women. Here, resilient and diverse Indigenous women from across Canada telling their stories in their communities with their voices and hear from the people who are inspired by them every day. So as I explored this website, I came across the, there are 
a lot of resources available on this website. We have quick fact links to links about deeper social issues that people, indigenous people are combating today. And that's really <laughs> my show in a nutshell, trying to open minds and expand the reality that there are many issues indigenous people are dealing with and really why things are the way they are today. Anywho, what I really like about this campaign is that there's a part on the website where you can actually nominate women that you would like to see recognized for their work and achievements. Uh, so it's really women and men having the capability of honoring our women through social media, through this amazing campaign. And every time they share a article about a individual and the work they've done and the accomplishment, accomplishments they've made um, at the end of their article there is a hashtag that says end violence with respect and I I was kind of moved by that I think this is a very powerful statement for various reasons as it speaks on our value to society as women that we are more than stereotypes and statistics and unfortunately I'm mass majority of the show has just been amplifying the stereotypes and statistics that um, many people have towards indigenous women and how it's ultimately led to many crimes and mis uh, what is that injustices happening towards our people so with that hashtag and violence with respect we learn about these women, we learn about the great work they're doing. And when we start to respect these women, we are less likely to enforce violence against them, right? When we respect something, we take care of it, we protect it, we value it. So I thought that was a really nice hashtag to include in all the articles that they use. And I think that's a good segue into our next conversation about indigenous fe feminism. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you couldn't think I speak English as a first language today. Indigenous feminism. We're going to talk about that after the break, so stay tuned for that. <laughs>
morning guys welcome back to the indigenous connections radio show um we are continuing on with our okamawa square series and we are starting to pivot up work towards empowering our women and i thought what a great topic to talk about indigenous feminism so i'm gonna get a little personal here uh i think i get personal throughout this whole episode but I'm not going to use articles for this point. <laughs> so I'm just going to be honest with you. In my earlier years, I thought indigenous feminism was somewhat of an oxymoron. <laughs> um, but I also had so much to learn. And the reason why I thought it was an oxymoron, because I think of feminism and I think women above men are, I mean, not I got that confused. When I think feminism, I think they're fighting for rights for equality of men and women, which I understand is important. But when I thought about putting indigenous in front of that, I was kind of confused because historically, traditionally, in our indigenous cultures, women were, we say, above men. We were a matriarch society. Women were held in high respect, and men understood this. So I was like, so... With indigenous feminism, aren't we just bringing ourselves down? But like I said, I had a lot to learn. Um, and I was kind of just making assumptions about it, about what this work entails. So even I have my own biases. I have my own stereotypes. And I have a lot to learn. Even though I lived the culture and I've so, I dive so deep into learning about it, even me, I still have so much to learn. But as I continued on my journey and experiencing along with witnessing a lot of violence, harm, and oppression against women in general that we face in society really opened my eyes to why feminism is very important work. Uh, How much the patriarchy has devalued the work and the worth of women, which is boggling in a way for me because reality is... None of us would exist if it wasn't for a woman bringing us into this world, right? And how the abuse and hurt directed towards women has been accepted and even normalized in many cases. Um, personally, I've experienced many relationships that uh, involve domestic violence. And I've watched many women that I care about fall victim to unsavory acts of men. And it was very upsetting. It was very hard on the spirit to know that people thought that this was okay. A guy would talk to the friends of the men that are portraying these unsavory acts towards women. This even being violent towards women. And they didn't think it was a big deal. They're like, oh, you're overreacting. It's not a big deal. Oh, whatever. And they really were choosing to not keep their friends accountable for their actions. Being told that, oh, this is just what happens to women. And don't make a big deal about it. Or you will be the one who is labeled as crazy and overreacting and dramatic. That often people in the circles of these men hurting women will ignore their actions. They won't keep them accountable and stand up to their unhealthy ways. Uh, I knew deep down that this wasn't right and this isn't fair. At times, I did feel very helpless in my 20s, wondering if this was all women were perceived as punching bags because 
of the situation I was living in and in the situation that many of my girlfriends were living in, that we were being used as punching bags, that we were being forced to live a lifestyle that was subservient to these men, that were extremely controlling of us, telling us what to wear, not to keep our heads up. Oh, um, false accusations. Oh, I seen you making eyes at that guy when you were just walking. And it, it's crazy making. Um, fortunately, I was able to remove myself from that situation and I was able to go to counseling and I was able to do the work to help heal my mind and kind of pick myself out of that very negative idea that this is just what women are here for. So as I got older, I realized that the only thing that will make change is if I change, that if I do the work to find my voice, to set boundaries and to advocate for my power as a woman, as an indigenous woman, um, there are times I didn't want to have children even because of the relationship I had. And this was a decision I made out of fear that I would, all I would be, be used for is to be used and abused by men. So what was the point of even trying to bring children into this world be, to expose them to that? It, it was a very negative time in my life, but I'm grateful I'm not there today that I have been able to come to a place in my own head to help me understand how important concepts such as feminism and celebrations such as International Women's Day are. I understand some people do get uncomfortable with the concept of feminism. And like I said, I was one of them. Uh, A misunderstanding that women are trying to disempower men through feminism is a very toxic masculinity idea. And yes, in every moment, we got to understand there are people who are very vicious and very extreme. But I think it's important to acknowledge that these people are often motivated, motivated by their own hurt that they've allowed to manifest as anger. My mom, I'm so grateful that she taught me this, is that we should never do this kind of work from a place of anger because it does become a fight between us versus them. And we do make people defensive because we feel they feel like they're being attacked. And when a person feels attacked, they're not going to be open-minded to hearing your side of the story. All they're going to be worried about is defending themselves. And this isn't what I want you to focus on when we continue forward with this conversation, okay? So feminism, International Women's Day are not movements and celebrations to put one group of people on a pedestal as they look down on others, but to recognize these people have been oppressed And a part of their healing is to find pride in their identity, a pride that they were never allowed to celebrate Um, and just loving themselves and just having the opportunity to share that pride within society. Um, And that can also be applied to other groups such as the LGBTQ2+, their pride celebration, uh, Indigenous. Indigenous Peoples Day, Black History Month, etc. You know, there's so many groups that have been oppressed through by society through the history of time. So it's very unfortunate. But now I look at feminism as a necessary tool in healing society as a whole. Uh, There's a very famous Cheyenne proverb that comes to mind when I'm talking about all of this. And it's that 
A nation is not conquered until the hearts of its women are on the ground. Then it's done, no matter how brave its warriors nor how strong their weapons are. And I think that just really feeds into how valuable women are, how important the roles women play in our lives to empower each and every one of us. And when a woman loses hope, when she loses the will and the urge to continue forward and fight, how it affects not only her, but everyone around her, right? So we're going to take a break and we'll come back and I'm going to kind of explain a bit more of what the heck indigenous feminism even means, okay? So stay tuned for that. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show and we are talking about indigenous feminism. So what the heck is indigenous feminism? So according to the Canadian Encyclopedia, and I'm just getting this on my phone, you guys remember when encyclopedias were huge books and they were all alphabetized and we, you had to get a new set every year to keep up with modern day-to-day histories? <laughs> oh, how times have changed. Okay, back to what I was talking about. So according to the Canadian Encyclopedia, at their root, indigenous feminisms examine how gender and conceptions of gender influence the lives of indigenous peoples historically and today. Indigenous feminist approaches, challenges, challenge stereotypes about indigenous people, gender, and sexuality, for instance, as they appear in politics, society, and the media. Indigenous feminisms offer frameworks for learning about and understanding these and other issues, regardless of one's gender or ethnicity. Although gender, sex, and sexuality are central in indigenous feminisms, they intersect with other aspects of people's identities, including indigeneity, example, indigenous identity, age, ability, and social class. Scholars therefore emphasize that indigenous feminisms should consider multiple aspects of identity. To focus on only one or two creates incomplete and flawed understandings. So I just want to make a note that it's pronounced indigenous feminisms, not feminism. It's meant to be plural because like I said in that last sentence, that we can't just focus on one or two aspects that were uh, talked about in that article, that we need to understand feminisms from an indigenous perspective as a whole, it needs to include all of those topics. Uh, so according to many indigenous scholars, the need for indigenous feminisms was sprung from the fact that mainstream or AKA settler feminism did not and does not completely understand the experiences of indigenous women. Indigenous women along with being more likely victimized by violent crimes have lower incomes and less political representation than indigenous men and non-indigenous women. Like I said, Deb Hadlin making waves, being appointed the first indigenous woman to federal office in the United States, that's a huge, huge deal for us as indigenous women on, because for so long that, that would never ever happened um, versus non-indigenous women who have had a role in federal politics for a lot longer than 
before 2021, right? Anywho, uh, too often these realities are ignored by mainstream feminism and even with some indigenous communities. So it's even our own people who aren't acknowledging this. And I was one of them, right? So indigenous feminism challenges people to acknowledge, understand, and address these oppressions that indigenous women face. According to Kim Talbert uh, from the Sisseton-Wapaten IOT, Dakota people, indigenous feminisms bring marginalized voices together to dismantle hierarchies and be in good relation with one another. Therefore, indigenous sovereignty frameworks and ways of knowing are all central ways of knowing and are all central to indigenous feminisms. Indigenous feminisms isn't only focusing on dismantling colonial, patriarchal, oppressive policies. Oh, (laughs) that was a big sentence. Let's do that again. Dismantling colonial, patriarchal, oppressive policies, (laughs) such as residential schools and the Indian Act, as we have discussed in the past, but also works to support well-being and positive gender relations in Indigenous communities. So the best way I can kind of explain this from my own personal experience is why I chose to move to Saskatchewan to obtain my Indigenous social work degree from the First Nations University, where I actually had the option of getting my social work degree from Grant McEwen University in Edmonton. I had taken two years of the Aboriginal Mental Health Diploma program through Grant McEwen, and it actually had a process where you could transfer the two years from the mental health program directly into the social work program. So if I did that, I would have only had to take two extra years to get a degree versus the reality of me moving all the way to another province and having to do four years to get my degree. And I talked to people who had taken that route. I'm going from this Aboriginal mental health program to the social work program at Grant McEwen. And what I got back from them was that the social work taught at Grant McEwen was very uh, mainstream mainstream ideologies, that it was more focused on Western views. And I'll be the first to say Grant McEwen is an awesome university. I totally enjoyed my experience there. I love being a student there. But knowing that the reason why I was so successful in the Aboriginal Mental Health Program was because they utilized teachings of the culture and our point of view and our languages and our ceremonies. And they used all of that and incorporated into the educational curriculum, into the content And it was something I could personally relate to as this was my life that they were talking about. And they were talking about working with Indigenous people from an Indigenous perspective. So it was really important for me to continue on with my education in an institute that would support my cultural teachings as part of their curriculum. And we talked about that a lot in both my programs in the mental health and the social work program, of how when you want to work with a certain group of people, uh, you best learn everything you can about them. Learn about their languages, learn about their point of views, learn about their ideologies and their teachings. Listen to their stories, because despite 
our good old Western views, we aren't the only people here. <laughs> we, our values are not the only values out there. Uh, many indigenous people around the world have many different views of the world around them and they are beautiful and they and when we want to work with people we want to help empower them we don't want to force a foreign system on them and be like okay heal now we want to work with them they are the experts in their own lives their experiences their cultures their languages their teachings are all valuable and i think we are starting to understand that more and more as society does work on itself, especially here in the West, where we've become very self-centered, if you will. <laughs> and we don't have to look any further than the residential school to see how much harm is caused by forcing a foreign system on a people, by taking away their value, their culture, their beliefs, their identities, and how much psychological damage that can do. And how is that helping anyone heal? So with indigenous feminisms, they are taking the idea of feminism and they are saying, yes, you are doing good work, but we need to, we need you to understand that our experiences as indigenous women are not the same as your experiences as non-indigenous women, as we have a very, very long history that has contributed to why our people are the way they are today. And we have a lot that has been taken away from us. And we are still trying really hard to level up to be at par with many other non-Indigenous women in professional fields. So it's not to say uh, we don't like you, we don't want to practice your ways. It's just we as a people know what we need to heal. And we as a people live this life every day. So we can emphasize a little bit more about what our communities need in a way. I hope that makes sense to everyone. <laughs> All right, so now the next question is, how is Indigenous feminisms applied? And according to the Canadian Encyclopedia, Indigenous feminism ra feminisms, there we go, raise critical questions about gender in relation to politics, law, history, economics, art, cultural health, and social relationships. Indigenous feminisms are vital in challenging racist, sexist, and colonial oppression, and collectives have emerged from these discussions shaping movements such as I Don't Know More and grassroots organizations like the Native Youth Health Network. Native Youth Sexual Health Network. Sorry about that. Indigenous feminist perspectives are also central in discussing about contemporary social political issues such as missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, two-spirited trans people, as they raise key concerns not only about this violence, but also about the roles that various peoples and communities have in responding to this problem. Additionally, they challenge a lack of prior government engagements in the missing, murdered indigenous women, girls, two-spirited trans people's cases while varied experiences and identities affect views about and use of indigenous feminism, they remain useful frameworks of understanding for all people. There are diverse yet interrelated approaches to indigenous feminisms. We can see advocates applying the school of thought of indigenous feminisms in the fields of art, culture, law, politics, activism, and everyday life. 
alongside and at times even within these works are approaches to indigenous feminisms that expand feminist theory into new areas of analysis. For example, indigenous feminisms inform academic and community conversations on violence against indigenous women's sovereignty and LGBTQ2 plus issues. Exploring these subjects allow for deeper understanding of indigenous feminisms that are not solely concerned with normative gender and sexualities. So that was a lot of big words. <laughs> um, so what they're saying is indigenous feminisms is really starting to make waves. It's not a new concept, but it has really gained momentum since the 1990s. And it's helping people outside of indigenous cultures and indigenous people as well to understand ways of approaching the issues that affect indigenous women um, and explain them from an inside out view and helping us to understand what are the steps we can take to help empower these people. Um, today, there are many celebrated indigenous feminists in our First Nations communities, as well as in mainstream society. We can also refer to these women as matriarchs rising. Uh, I think that's a very suiting term, uh, title, I mean, for these women, uh, as they are regaining their roles as leaders in our society. And this is going to kind of lead us into our next conversation next week, where we're going to start to profile some of the amazing Indigenous women that are making waves and breaking those glass ceilings in our society. And I've really been looking forward to that episode because we've talked so much negative that I'm really excited to talk about our successes and our a positive light. So I think we'll call the day after that. So that wraps up, I'm guessing here, <laughs> our ninth episode of the Okamala Escuela series, the Boss Lady series. As promised, I said we were going to start at the top but we are going to kind of dive deep into these really horrific issues that affect women but we're going to start climbing back up and we are going to start talking about the positive change makers and uh, how women are rising to the occasion and starting to stand up in leadership roles and really take on that traditional role of being a matriarch in our society so this is really exciting i'm really happy that we made it to this point um and my motivation for that was that I didn't want to leave you guys on a negative note. like, Because we aren't going to be identified as victims. I don't believe in doing that. And I wanted, to, as much as we talk about our struggles, we need to talk about our rises as well. So that's where we're leading to. Hopefully, we'll be wrapping up our Okamawa Square series here in the next episode or two. It's been quite a journey, but I feel it's been a necessary journey because there's so much that entails in the reality indigenous women face. And I think that's what indigenous feminisms is about too. The reality that there's so many contributing factors and so many different policies and histories and uh, ideologies that are at work here. And we need to approach this issue from all of those standpoints, right? Okay, so I'm done saying big words for the day. We will gather again next week. So thank you again for listening. I hope you guys have a great day. And remember to respect the women in your lives. 
and respect yourself. You know, when we respect ourselves, we are more capable of sharing that love and respect with others. It all begins with how we treat ourselves, right? All right, so have a great week. And that's the Indigenous Connection show with Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.